Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hi guys, welcome to Adulting. This is the podcast where I try to figure out all the things that we're supposed to know as grown-ups but apparently don't know. And one of the biggest parts of growing up is realizing your privilege. I came across an amazing account on Instagram called No White Saviors and it really opened up my eyes to deeper, further understanding of the nuances towards white privilege, racism and white saviorism, which is something we're going to be talking about today. So I am joined by Bruce. Hi. <laughs> and I'm also Hello. joined by Kelsey. Uh, hi, guys. <laughs> so these guys, do you want to say a little bit about yourselves, introduce your background, etc.? Sure. Bruce, you want to go? <laughs> well, Kelsey, you go first. Ladies first. Yeah, go ahead. I'm just so selfless. Uh, <laughs> so um, I am a social worker by degree. I got my just finished my master's um, prior to that had been living in East Africa for about four years altogether. Um, I lived in Uganda uh, in Jinja specifically. Yeah, just that that's basically my background social worker worked in East Africa in child welfare um, thought for a while that I was above the savior complex thought that, you know, because we had Ugandan leadership in our organization, because we didn't take a front, you know, front and center role in serving the needs of the, the clients that came through our program. Um, I thought, okay, like I'm, I'm evolved. I'm conscious. I, you know, woke, so to say. Um, but in coming back to the U S and in doing my masters and in following accounts, um, like Layla and Rachel Cargill and just really digging much deeper into my privilege, um, and into racism and white supremacy, realize like there's so much that like I didn't address and that I, um, you know, that even in the moments when I was living there that I thought I knew and I was, I still had so wrong. Um, and so I think, yeah, I think that's, um, that was the motivation. I actually was the one who started the account initially, but it sat for no white savior sat for quite a few weeks, um, kind of dormant because, I didn't want to be a white person running that account without the voices of East Africans specifically, because that was my context and that's what I knew. Um, So the other three women who are the three women running it alongside of me that are okay with their names and identities being known, um, they are all women that I've known through living there. So Priscilla was actually my lawyer. Oh, really? (laughs) Yeah, she was my lawyer when we needed a lawyer. um, We were running into some issues. She knew about what our organization and Ginger was doing. Um, She actually volunteered to help us like at a very low cost. Um, So right off the bat, knew she was someone who, you know, like you come across your people and you're like, you're like, you're about the, the things that I like care about. And so 
Um, Crystal and I have been connected ever since then. Um, and then Olivia actually was one of the social workers at the um, project that I co-founded in Uganda. Um, and we've always been friends since like we worked together. Um, but I think even since starting this, uh, account, there's been some unpacking there where I have said, Olivia, I'm sure there are ways that I, that my power dynamic was not addressed even in like our working relationship and our friendship. And I want you to feel like you can talk through those things with me, but that's a whole nother, that could be a whole nother podcast. Yeah. <laughs> Oh, and then uh, Sharon is someone I admire um, a great deal. She has she runs a whole project herself in Jinja. Um, she actually grew up in an orphanage herself in Jinja, Uganda. Um, so she's been she's been both the recipient of the white savior complex. Like she has seen growing up having white people come in and out of the orphanage she grew up in, and having white folks come in and out of this town and form relationships and then leave. And then the way that they portray her and mm. other Ugandans. So I think we all, the, the team of the women, we, we it's interesting because we all know each other very well. Um, so uh, then we have another team member. Um, I'll call her G. That's the first letter of her name, but she just, because she's still working in development, she does not wish to be identified. Um, just like Bruce is going by an alias. So that's a good segue. <laughs> Bruce is also new to us. Um, he is our only guy on the team, um, but he is like, he's a feminist. He might not tell you that, but I think <laughs> <laughs> might be part of his intro, but he is like, so he's aware um, as a male too. So that's really awesome. Yeah. Yeah. Um, thank you for introing me. And part of the reason why, I'm going about it this way is because the team, I love how the team has established itself. And you typically, because of the systems of patriarchy, you don't see as many women-led organizations or movements yeah. because of patriarchy. So I don't want my voice because typically that's what will happen is, oh, because a male person is speaking, then things will be legitimized for whatever reason. So I'm trying to walk that balance. And that's why, because these wonderful women have started this organization, this movement, I am fully supporting this movement and lending my whatever expertise I have. But uh, I want to acknowledge and it continue to be uh, an organization led by women. Right. I think that's important. And that's what I know. Kelsey will resist that, and, mm-hmm. you know, but I believe, I, I think that for me, I feel we don't have enough of that anyway. So, you know, so that's my first, my little <laughs> uh, thing there. So I, my, my history is very brief. I was born and raised in Kenya and uh, went to the U.S. for college and I've lived in the U.S. in general for about over 20 years, but I've also been blessed to travel uh, all over Europe and parts of Southeast Asia and Australia and New Zealand. And so I've been able to see different experiences and experience different cultures and see the common commonalities we have as yeah. human beings and also the various disparities that uh, exist. And so my own coming into this space was experiencing prejudice as an African, as a Kenyan, and as a black person in America. So this intersex, 
intersectionality within all those experiences yeah. and then seeing the disparities that other people experience, you know, whether it's the GLPTQIA community, you know, uh, the ind- indigenous communities, you know, black folks, you know, Latinos, Native Americans, you know, you know, mixed race, you know, so all, you know, being able to see all of that um, uh, woke me, if you want to say that, use that term. And this is where it brought me, to, you know, to where I am today. And I've, you know, I've been involved in architecture and sustainability. Mm-hmm. That's where my career level is but uh in terms of how i came into no white saviors is they reached out to me i guess because of my crazy commentary sometimes on instagram (laughs) (laughs) and we bonded kelsey and i bonded and and i i loved their page it was just like it was speaking to a lot of the things that i had in my mind yeah and so and this is where we are now well, one question before we go anywhere. What do you think about um, white people using the term woke? I actually used it in a post the other day. And I know that it comes from like um, African-American vernacular English. Is that how you say it? A-A-G-E. Yes. So how do you mm-hmm. feel about white people? Do you think that's an appropriation of the term if we use it to mean? Because there's no real other word that we have in the English language that means like socially conscious aware in the same way. Mm. Yeah. Uh, so for me... The way I've understood woke to be is especially referencing whether it's white folk or anything. It's like it's someone who is aware of the disparities that exist and acknowledges them and is an ally to black and indigenous people of color in terms of challenging, you know, white supremacy and systems of uh, systemic racism. So that's where I from my understanding where the word woke is, oh, this person is woke, they are aware. Yeah. Um, and so it's a term that can be used appropriately, but then obviously because it's always fashionable to take a term and then use it with everything, you yeah. know, in every sense, just like when, you know, uh, the fist pounding that came from sports from black folk, and now everyone, you see CEOs doing it the same, you know, it, you know, so it, it's, it can't. It, it's 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 going towards appropriation. It's leading towards everyone using it for everything. It's being yes. watered down. Yeah. So I think again, it's context. It's if you're using it in the proper context, I think it's fine. But if it's become almost a playful or like a jokey way of like, oh yeah, so you know, like yeah. you can. It's being. That's I think it's where, having that awareness of where the heritage of the word is from, or like exactly. Yeah. Exactly. For sure. Exactly. And, um, and yes, it, it, it does veer towards inappropriateness in terms of how it's used. You know, if it's not, if it's because it's a serious, I think it's a serious term. Yeah. You know, it is a serious, it means something deep and serious. And so, you know, when it becomes very playful to an extreme extent and very arbitrary, then as you stated, you know, it can, it can become inappropriate to use. Yeah. Uh, yeah, no, I completely agree. Yeah, so how did you? Yeah, how did you come about? Did you like? Were you just on Instagram and then you found the page? How how um, did that happen? So I follow a really cool like artist activist called Florence Given, who's re- yes. like, really engaged, and she shares loads of really cool pages. So I'm always like following her stuff. And then I I came across No White Saviors, and I just got engrossed <laughs> and like yeah. obsessed with all everything that you're writing. Yeah. And I was like, that's really helpful. And I wanted to reply to everyone, and I was like, oh, this isn't my place because like I I just. It's only like in the last few years that I've really started to understand like the point of privilege that I have. And then I've kind of got really into it. 
Um, but to hear different perspectives, like the more you get into it, you're like, shit, you just can't stop seeing it everywhere. Could you, could you just briefly, like, could you define what a white savior is? Cause I'm not even joking. I hadn't really, I think I subconsciously was aware of the idea, but when I went on the page, I was like, oh my God, obviously this is so ridiculous that we go over there, take a few pictures and come back. And we're like, we've done such a good deed. Of course, it's not about the people you're helping. It's, it's ultimately, it's just helping the volunteer. But how do you define like what a white savior is and and what's the feeling in these countries that are being helped? Like it, how are we as like westernized countries like looking in from completely the wrong angle? Yeah. Kelsey, do you want to go first? Uh, sure. Um, yeah. um so I think much like um much like institutionalized racism. Um, or institution like institutionalized white supremacy, right? We're not looking at it as much like the one-on-one, the like individual, like if I want to like capture what that means, that's just a symptom. Yeah. The, the larger problem is the narrative and the rhetoric that has been used to talk about countries in the Southern hemisphere. And for, for what we're talking about specifically in sub-Saharan Africa. So, you know, that looks like things like, you know, colonization, drawing borders around mm. it, like dividing tribes and people groups and putting tribes and people groups that did not maybe get along or wouldn't have been put together otherwise. And then us, you know, in, in 2018, criticizing, um, cri- criticizing African um, countries for still having you know, conflicts. Right. When, so, so that's that systemic nature of, oh, like, why can't you just get your act together? Yeah. And, you know, that's again, and that's only one part. Um, so when I, I guess when I look at the white savior complex, I think all of the thing it, it is, it is built upon all of these preconceived notions and lies that we have that Africa is less, resourceful, less knowledgeable, less able, less capable. Um, and that we, because we are Western and therefore we are superior. Um, so it is, it is, it's white supremacy. Yeah. And I know that is a very strong term for a lot of people. Um, that's why, um, I don't know. Do you follow Layla? Yeah, I do, but I don't that closely, but, and also Rachel Cog, I've only just recently started following her, but she's amazing. Yeah. Both of them, I think, if we can link your followers um, and the listeners to those two accounts, I would say both um, Layla's in the UK and Rachel's here in the US and New York. Um, I actually work with Rachel closely. I help moderate a group for um, called the start. And um, so I've worked with Rachel closely one-on-one and she, she and Layla both. Um, and there's other, so many other yeah. um, powerful black women doing important work. But I think Layla specifically, I've seen, identify white supremacy in a way that is accessible, but not gentle. Um, And I think that's really, really important that for for too long when we talk about white supremacy, it's been, well, I'm not a Nazi. I'm not a, I'm not a fascist. I'm not all of these things. And we, that's where we're talking because we're talking about a larger system, just right. Like I'm not going to come and say like all white saviors, you're all racist and terrible. Well, we're all contributing to racism, this right? Is, we're, yeah. we're white, we're adding to that problem. So I get um, this backlash a lot when I talk about um, white privilege and racism. And I'm like, you might not be a functioning active racist who's going around saying things, but by by proxy of being white, 
you profit off of structures that destabilize black and ethnic minority groups because in order for you to keep your privilege, you have to be standing on someone. So whether or not you're actively acting in a racist manner, you are also a product of what you're not doing. So unless you're working to destabilize these structures that that keep keep these racist structures working, then you are a little bit racist. And I know people get so offended because I don't mean you personally, individually. I just mean we. And, and also you don't have to be white either. This is the other thing. Like people can be, just like a woman could be a misogynist, a person of color can be racist. It's structures and it just depends mm-hmm. where you're born, how you profit off them. Yeah. I think everyone takes it much too individually. It's not about the individual. Mm. I mean, it is, but fundamentally, it's about really unpicking the structures that were there already. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. That's really well said. Yeah. And just uh, piggybacking on what Kelsey um, was saying, you know, and I mispronounced his name. Is it Rudyard or Rudyard Kipling? Oh, uh, yeah. Rudyard. Rudyard. I say Rudyard, but I don't know, actually. Yeah. So he wrote this poem, you know, uh, the white, the white man's burden in 1899. And it was a reference, I think, to the American Filipino war. Well, basically it really was taking up that mantle of, you know, what, you know, white man's burden to take care of others who are savages. Mm. And that was what was carried on in terms of colonialism. So that mentality has continued uh, path where well, we say post-colonialism, but it's continued beyond that to this point today. So you go from, uh, you know, colonizing all these Southern Hemisphere nations, Africa and all, you know, Africa, Southeast Asia and so forth to, to civilize. And I put that in quotes to civilize the savages, which is, uh, it's a stupid, stupid mm. idea that doesn't even exist. And then, um, post-colonial when all these countries, African countries are only about on average 50 to 60 years old in terms of independence. So they're beginning the process of, of, of just being independent and growing yeah. and learning about themselves, especially when they've been thrown together forcibly by, you know, by this colonial powers, which were European. And then so that's happening. And then you have all these multinational institutions, corporations, uh, these trade agreements between the Western Hem- the Western uh, world or Northern Hemisphere and Southern Hemisphere countries that are imbalanced. White privilege has existed for a long time, since the first explorers went out to explore the Americas and, you know, the Portuguese and the Spanish, and then it spread out in terms of into colonialism and to what we have today with institutions uh, set up that create that benefit um, um, explicit and implicit in terms of, um, you know, for white folk. And and again, it's not like you said, you know, you're born into the system. you, You might not be aware of it until it's brought, you know, until you study and, and see where those disparities are. Just like, you know, it's a patriarchy. The world is a patriarchy. Men benefit way more than women do. I acknowledge that as a man. I know I have had so many benefits. I know I don't have to fear about walking out at night and fear about being assaulted or 
any of those things that women have to experience. I don't, I, you know, there's so many things that I have privilege as a man that yeah. women and don't. I, and I can't pretend and be like, well, no, it's there. And so my responsibility is to recognize my privilege and to be an ally and to break break the, the, the disparities that exist as a man I think towards you're, women and other genders. Yeah, I think you're able to see that though because as a man of color, you face your own fight. Yes. So I think yeah. that's why even like as a woman as well, I can see racism differently because I face sexism. It's the same with you. You face racism and then so you can understand sexism. I think the problem is, and also exactly what you're saying, no one's educated. In the UK, we're not taught about like black slave history in the UK. You're not, it's not on our school <laughs> syllabus. There's an amazing yeah. book. You've probably read it, Why I'm No Longer Speaking to White People About Race by Rennie mm-hmm. Odelodge. It's an amazing, have you guys read it? Mm-hmm. it's such mm-hmm. a good book so that's like that's the first kind of time that anything properly published that's gone really wide wide has actually talked about british black slave history like before that you got to talk about stuff that's completely irrelevant like egyptians yeah. and tudors which just doesn't add into your understanding of who you are in terms of as how society works so that's recent history that we really should be taught about mm-hmm. and it's just missing yeah um yeah and I mean, I, uh, my younger brother lives in London. And so, and, um, you know, he's, you know, he's married uh, and has a two-year-old and his wife is English and white. So um, I'm sure, you know, we've never really talked about it, but I'm sure they, they have their experiences and, mm. you know, in terms of being, um an interracial couple and having a child that, you know, is mixed and for him being black, I'm sure, you know, um, if I, if I did ask him about that, which I will eventually, you know, what those experiences are. And I've, you know, I've been to London, you know, um, and I, like, you're right, the UK and a lot of, you know, whether it's France, you know, Italy and all, you know, with populations, with African or immigrant populations that are sizable enough, I think those conversations only come up when it's immigration issues or yes. um, uh, when it when it's to do with uh, loss of jobs or, or economically. Yeah, that's when you have those conversations or those things uh, spring up. But in terms of dealing with the social you know, um, cultural, systemic issues. Uh, I think the U.S. is ahead in that sense. Mm. Um, and I'm not saying it, you know, like, oh, wow, they're ahead. No, it's just like, it's us, you, you know, it's, it's you know, black folk here in, in America have have pushed and, and fought and clawed to be heard and mm. continue to do so under... The craziest circumstances. I think and, it's a broader uh, conversation in America. I think it's just yeah. less spoken about in the UK. Yeah, and and but I think it's emboldening. I think now, I think look at your podcast, this podcast here. You're having this conversation. I mm. think it's. I think people, especially since we're a more connected world, I think these conversations are beginning to happen. Whether it's talking about this particular subject of you know white privilege. And systemic racism, whether it's talking about uh, uh, gender disparities, the Me Too campaign, Time's Up, all these things are now 
coming to the forefront and 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 hopefully this is this is this is just the beginning in terms of we have to face this painful we have to have this painful conversations yeah. and painful emotions come out and we have to face them you can't you can't soft pedal any of these conversations no yeah. So from that, could you explain to me, one, what drove you to set up No White Saviors, and two, to people who maybe still aren't grappling what the actual concept or what it is and why it can be so damaging to these to communities, cultures, and countries when someone goes over and just tries to, like, kind of put their help, in inverted commas, onto people? Yeah. So there's a lot of, this is something that I didn't realise I don't, I started to realize it's as pervasive as I thought it might be um, when I started coming back and having conversations with other people who had traveled and spent time elsewhere and meeting people just from different countries like Nigeria, Ghana, um, Cameroon. I've some had some women in my program from those from West Africa um, in university. So I think drive what drove me to start the account was all of the stuff I saw myself and so many others in my town of Jinji, Uganda, complicit in. Um, and it went, un- not only did it go a lot of times unchallenged, it was like, it was like, uh, like weirdly, like, like amplified and supported and encouraged. Mm. Like, it wasn't even just that, like, oh, this, like stuff is crazy as, and we posted this on the account, but there's a woman who, is was homeschooled in Virginia. Um, a lot of it, it's not only, but a lot of it is very rooted in like Christianity. And I grew up in the evangelical church, um, in a predominantly white evangelical church. So I feel like I can also speak to that is that there's this essence of like, God calls you and you don't actually have to know what you're doing. You just go and do it. And Mm. God's going to like make it happen. It's like some like weird, like, if you just go do it, all things are going to fall into place and God's going to just like make it work instead of realizing like how effed up that is yeah, uh, and realizing how problematic that is. Um, people use God or religion or Jesus to excuse their uh, irresponsibility. And I don't, ignorance, I, mean, I guess. And um, And so Again, I, I want to stress that I know it's not just a problem of evangelicals, um, but in the U.S. evangelical church, I think especially, but I've met evangelicals from Australia, from the U.K., from all over, from Germany, um, that are in Uganda and in other countries. So it's, yeah, I think, again, it's it's so many things wrapped up in one, but that saviorism is we can go and fix problems that we actually don't know how to fix that no one would ever let us fix or try to fix in our own country because we don't have the degree. We don't have the training. We don't have, we wouldn't be able to get the funding because no one would give us a grant to do it here, but we go overseas and do whatever the hell we want because we think that we can get away with it. And we have largely for a long time. Um, And I think that is, that was the, I've watched, I know kids who have died at the hands of this. It's not just uh, some selfies or some, you know, problematic content on a Facebook status. This is, I've watched children die. Like the white, when I was, I'm sorry, I brought up this white woman from Virginia in the U.S., comes from an evangelical family, was homeschooled, and she started a project to address malnutrition. She started with no medical training, doing blood transfusions and doing um, very serious, like, 
physician level medical care. No medical care, no medical license. Children, when I tell you there was a nurse, uh, there were multiple people from the US and Uganda who reported what she was doing. There's like, there was at like tens to like, um, at least um, like between like, probably like 20 to 100 kids who have died because of her. <sighs> and she, listen, she, she was protected by the missionaries in our town. The white missionaries from the US said we were attacking her. So we got her organization was shut down by the Ministry of Health because she wasn't registered to be a medical facility or wasn't registered properly. And she opened back up. She still, she now opened up another project in Mayuge district in Uganda and is now still there. She should be facing criminal charges. Right. Just to like contextualize this in the UK, I genuinely think unless you're like first aid registered, you can't even like really put someone in the recovery position. No. So how are you then from going from that to going abroad to doing it's you're so right. It's like, no yeah. one would let you do this. And we really do. It's, it's so selfish in of itself anyway, because I did it when I was 18. I went out to Ecuador. I spoke Spanish and I taught uh, Spanish to indigenous children. And I remember thinking this was so great and it's amazing, but you're right. I waltzed into those kids lives for like two months. They probably got really attached to me because they're really young. I absolutely love them. And then I just left and went back home. Like what happens when I go? Like that's no stability for the child. Why do I think that I'm better than, why couldn't we have taught those Quechua women and men Spanish to teach their own children or the child? That's, that's where I think, I, it's so obvious now when you say it, but when when it's done so much, it just seems like it makes sense. I mean, we have the whole comic relief where the whole idea of that is it's to support children in Africa and it's like white celebrities go out and... You know, it's yeah. it's it's in it's institutionalized. It's in our actual, like almost government. Like, do you know what I mean? It's more than. Well, I yeah. I've flown I've flown British Airways the most out of anyone. Yeah. And I I would literally like cringe at the advertisements and the pamphlets that they put in for comic relief. I'm like, and actually, one of my friends in Kampala that runs a very it's actually a very good charity. It's all mostly Ugandan led, and it promotes you know kids being adopted domestically by Ugandan families. It's great. Yeah. But they were supported by comic relief. And I'm like, it's so exploitative the way that they, you know, just it with the language that was used, the graphics that are being used, you're like on your, you know, you're flying from Heathrow to Entebbe and you're like, this is like, you are just solidifying everything everyone already thought, you know, that was it's hard though because I know that saying this like obviously my listeners are mostly UK based I know that will hit a nerve and I know people will like but it's so good and I I the, the problem is the difficulty is that people see things like but it's charity charity does good that's what that's doing but fundamentally whilst it might seem like a great idea to go and to help someone less like it's like exactly what you're saying if someone was dying in the middle of the road I wouldn't try and administer CPR or give them a blood transfusion I would ring an ambulance and it's like that on a very long extension. Instead of ringing an ambulance or locating people who know what they're doing within that area, we're going, oh, I'll just get on a plane and do it myself. Yeah. Like, I think that's the best way yeah. to kind of make it more. And, and I'm not... I okay, go, go ahead. ahead. Okay. No, no. That? Go ahead, go ahead. Sorry. Can I clarify on the comic relief? Because I don't think they're complete trash. Right? Yeah. I think, I won't, I don't want to ever throw away. There's most organizations I won't, just say, don't like throw it away. Don't do anything. And I think we all would agree. Um, not, I mean, I don't want to speak for everyone, but we've talked a lot as a team about this. Um, and it's, it's not that we're saying 
don't do it at all. Mm. Um, we're saying do it better. Yeah. You know, for comic relief, do like, let's maybe one day it'll be us sitting at a, at a boardroom table with them in London and saying, this is how we can improve your PR because your PR, you can't, you're helping people, but at the same time, you're hurting. Yeah. Because you're putting the whole conversation. You're, you're continuing to solidify the language, the images and the harmful, just narrative overall of what has been said about yeah. these communities. Um, and that's what we're trying to challenge where, you know, I, there is a way to talk about the need that exists and, and not paint people as weak and vulnerable and, you know, um, pitiful. It, there's ways to, to show the, the strength. Yeah. And uh, as, as you say, like, it's not, it's not that comic relief is bad. It's that that is, that is born out of the society that is still built off of these, like, especially as the UK, people don't realize we rape, pillaged and stole from every other country in the world. <laughs> we're like one of the worst people yeah. for invading mm-hmm. everyone and taking everything. And then all of a sudden we're on a high horse, like, do you want us to help you? And I think that's just that little kind of bit of a little massive bit of hypocrisy needs to be addressed so yeah. that you can see how actually this is such recent history that people just need a bit more awareness. I think Bruce, what were you going to? Yeah. yeah. Um, yeah, those are really good points. And for me, um, looking at yeah, historically, and I don't know about comic relief. I haven't heard, you know I haven't heard about them, but I think the whole idea of charity should change. I mm. think the word charity itself should be consigned to the basement or basin of whatever. It's it's it is a depowering term. Mm. I think the way organized, if if you want to call it relief work at whatever you want to yeah. call it, I think it needs to change fundamentally, just like how any organization's businesses are changing how they do business. Relief organizations need to change as well. It's a co-creative aspect. Mm. And that's the thing. If you want and and that's really understanding why this exists and why you're going into this situation. And I think individually and organizationally, those questions need to be asked. And for myself, I wrote, I posted in one of uh, the No White Saviors Instagram, before I even joined you know, <laughs> uh, Kelsey and the team, like for me, if I wanted to go and volunteer, uh, what are some of the things, what would I look at myself and ask myself why I want to do them? So I, I'll just read quickly. If yeah, you, do it. You know, it's just, yeah. So um, number one, it's take a step back and do some self-reflection on your motives. Like really ask yourself why you're doing mm. this. What is, what is, what is it, where is this coming from and why do you want to do this? Um, and the second, you know, second point is it's co-creation. It's not versus charity. And that begins at home. Look at your local community, your town and yes. your city. There are deep issues of poverty and inequality in most towns and cities everywhere around mm-hmm. the world. Start your advocacy work there and refine and learn from it. Basically, be a community activist. Yeah. So in other words, if you really want to be helpful, look around you. You know, yes. like it's, 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 so we, are, we tend to want to look outside of ourselves so much. And that narrative, like you spoke in the UK and, you know, like the images of African children, you know, all these organizations, when they advertise calling for donations and they post these images of, 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 you know, dying babies and you know, starving African children. And then you discover 50 or more percent of what is donated goes to administrative costs. Yeah. So that's the other aspect that, you know. And then uh, the third thing I wanted to emphasize is to 
anyone who wants to do this has to educate themselves on the struggles of black and indigenous people of color and what they face in your community that you are in right now. Um, and regionally and nationally as well. Learn about immigration and immigration, uh, immigration and immigrant rights. Take workshops on all these issues as well as take workshops on cultural sensitivity. And then another thing is to get out of your comfort zone in terms of learning about white privilege. You know? yes. Really ask yourself these questions. You know, read books and literature by black and indigenous people of color. You know, uh, find out who these authors are as well as African, Central American, South American, Caribbean, Polynesian, Southeast Asian authors. So learn, you know, start reading, because a lot of the books that we read are very, again, white-centric yes. in that sense. So you have to t teach yourself, you know, uh, get involved in their communities, their immigrant communities around, make some friends, get involved in, you know, come and see what, and be part, you know, witness their culture and just witness and observe and learn, you know, um, talk to your family and white friends about white privilege. Yeah. You know? uh, um, educate yourself about colonialism, colonialism, post-colonial policies, brinkmanship, the World Bank and IMF austerity policies towards the Southern Hemisphere, multinational corporations um, that abuse resources and the people of Southern, uh, and exploit the people of the Southern Hemisphere as well. Yeah. Um, and the, the extreme um, imbalance in trade agreements between, you know, newly independent African and after basically African countries and and the Northern Hemisphere as well. Learn those things. Like those are things you have to learn at first before you um, <laughs> before I think you can think about, hey, I want to go to so and so country and you know. And, and save um, them and volunteer. Yeah. yeah. And then, um, yeah, I think that's, that's, you know, and, and the idea again is a symbiotic process, you know, so, and there's local organizations in all these countries that are already doing great work. Yeah. So rather than you going, yeah, unless you have a particular skill set, a really particular skill set that is lacking or is, there's a dearth of that skill set. And you feel through your training and you've done your orientation, you've done the research and so forth that you can, you can, um, you can be of benefit to go and share that skill set. Then that's fine. You can do that, but make sure you're thinking of it as a co-creative process, you know. And also, and then refrain from using any type of social media yeah. documentation. Do you have to respect the privacy? I think of that's the people you're co-creating. Yeah, yeah, I think that's the part that really kind of struck home for me is when you see it. When I see it on maybe someone's page, I'm like, oh, that's nice. But when you see it on your page and you see all these images yeah. of just people standing there with these communities, and you think, have those communities consented to be on this person's Instagram page? Yeah. Do I even know that this? How do I know that those families aren't in a position that actually need help, and they happen to just be like, it's very exploitative, and it, it's yes. and it's also the other the other part of thinking like. We're so accustomed to how we live in, in our westernized nature and the way that our world works. Who are we to look in and say that actually those communities might be perfectly happy? They might be perfectly content and privileged within their own right. And it's that misinterpretation. Yes. It's that kind of like, oh, look at these people when actually you have no idea what the standard of living is. You have no idea how happy they are. Yeah. And you can't you can't just kind of 
put that there and be like, look at me, this is so great. And I honestly didn't see it until you see it on your page. And it's so blindingly obvious how damaging that narrative is that like we go in for two weeks. Yeah. Look, we saved everyone. Well, you, you didn't, <laughs> you know? I mean, I would, I would love to. I mean, I've lived in the US for a while. I've traveled all over. I could go to one of the poorest communities anywhere here, um, you know, especially poor white communities. Yeah. And I could bring some donations and take pictures with the babies and the families I, and, and post that. I could go to Leeds so. in the UK. I could go to, yeah. you know, Hampshire in, the, in, 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 in England and, you know, go to the, you know, and do the same thing. I could go anywhere. And you can imagine me doing something like that as a black person and then having the, you know, the furor, the hue and cry, the recriminations and all of that stuff. So, for any person that's doing this, imagine me coming to your community, to your family, to your neighborhood, to yes. even your house and say, oh, there's a lower middle class. Oh, you're suffering. Okay, so yeah. you don't, you know, I can take pictures and everything. Oh, your parents are fighting. Let me take pictures. You know, like it's, <laughs> it's, it's, it's it, I can go into, yeah. you're basically putting on blast in a reality show style situation. Yeah. People's lives. And so, um, and the excuse is, oh, we want to show what the struggle is. No, this, you don't need to do that in that way. That's, that's, um, poverty porn or whatever. Yeah. And also because is. like, I don't know what those communities live like normally. I don't know what their housing situation is like. I don't know what's deemed to be like a good family, a bad family, a good standard of living, etc. So when you're putting up these pictures, it's almost completely redundant and irrelevant because obviously me living in London is a completely different lifestyle to someone living in Africa. So even the comparison in the first place is so extrapolated from our norm, it doesn't really make sense. Do you know what I mean? Like we don't know what they're seeing or how their lives are. And you can't just be taking pictures of people. And it is, I think the thing is, it does come from a good intention, but it comes from a place where people need to be made to feel uncomfortable. And I know it can feel affronting and it can feel a bit like, but I'm trying to help. I didn't do this to be cruel. I didn't do this to be mean. But the point is, you're getting your kicks by thinking you're helping someone when there's, like, as you say, there's so many issues towards the way that our media represents immigration. When it's foreign people coming into mm -hmm. the country, our media, you can count it on the TV, there might be like 20 stories in an hour, whether it's good or bad. Mm -hmm. We're told that foreign bodies coming into the UK is bad. But then the minute you want to do some help, you decide that you're going to go somewhere really far afield and help over there. And it's like, how can you have two completely opposing views towards people of the world? This is what's quite confusing. It's like, we... Yeah. Sorry, you kind of... No, no, I'm sorry. I didn't mean to interrupt you. And I wanted to just bring one very interesting point and talking about Christian missionaries. And I'll speak specifically to the US. Um... So uh, we have our president, Trump, as, as our president. president. <laughs> and, and, um, and he has a huge support from the evangelical right, the Christian right. right. And they were very much opposed to President Obama uh, uh, as the president, right? And President Obama, his heritage is half Kenyan, yeah. half African. So it's interesting that they were so opposed to how he was as a president, and yet you want to send missionaries to Africa. But it's not even, and but mm -hmm. that's actually not even. It's not. It makes sense because they're like, we yes. want you, we want you to be in a position of 
charity of wanting our help. But when you come into power, you are threatening to that very uh, dynamic. Completely. That's If really sinister. From a, from a, yeah. you know, that's how I see it. Oh, no. That, yes, yeah. we can interact with you as long as you aren't in the same level of, of, of privilege that we are. Well, so it's, it's a very... Um, it's I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash spoken today. Ingenuous in my, you know, you may have, you know, you know, and I was raised Catholic. I read the Bible three times. I know it very well. And so I, and if we talk about Christian aspects i can go another tangent and get people really angry but uh, my point is it's very interesting how the way we choose to interact and i'm saying we but i'm saying the way we choose to interact um in the western world uh with with the southern hemisphere is typically we wanted to be a uh, and power imbalance. Yes. I think um, it's really sinister, but it's exactly what you're saying. And Renny Edo-Lodge says it in her book as well. She's like, basically, white supremacists are scared of black people taking over because it's that exact concept of, I say it so many times, but privilege, no, equality to the privileged feels like oppression. When they see a, um, a black man in color, a, a, a man of color in power, people feel oppressed by it. White people feel like that's my space. But they're happy to go over and help in a country where they're like, oh, this is where you belong. I'm not saying these are my beliefs. I'm saying that's how dark those undertones are. The problem is people aren't aware of it. That's the issue. They don't see that. They're like, I'm being helpful. I'm going to go help in Africa. And then at the same time, hold really racist beliefs when they're in their own country. And it's, it's because it's that very small level of, but I'm doing a charitable deed that makes them believe that those racist undertones aren't there. It's so, it's so nuanced and it's so interweaved into day-to-day life. And because everything is whitewashed, like 95% of journalists are white. Things that get reported are from a white point of view. So it's very easy. Yes. The media is owned by exactly. Yeah. Yeah. So that's where the problem is. Absolutely. I think there's so many points to touch on there, but (laughs) there is, there's just, it's because I think we don't talk about it. We dance around you're, you're exactly right. We dance around what it actually is because we think, well, people are doing some good, right? Yeah. But one of the things we keep saying and we want to keep maintaining is that good intentions are not good enough, right? Just because you mean well, um, just like being white and in a friendship with a woman of color um, or just a person of color in general, I can mean well, but I can commit a ton of microaggressions. Oh, in for friendship. sure. Whether it's getting my hair braided, whether it's appropriating language, whether it's touching her hair, it, it, whether it's uh, saying, like calling, like talking down about the neighborhood she grew up in. Yeah. There's so many different layers to the way, like, like that's the whole notion of like, because you have a black partner or because you have a black friend or because you have a biracial child, it does not mean you're not racist. In fact, some okay. of the people I have met that are the most racist have children and have partnered with people of color. Yeah. And, um, and they use their privilege and they use that in a very real way in that dynamic. 
Um, and so, and I've been part of that problem. I've been, I've been a part of that problem. Um, and so I think, yeah, I think that that's, we don't, it's a level that's that level of racism where we can't, we can't, because we can't see you as equal because we can't see whether it's, um, black Americans, whether it's, um, people in East Africa, whether it's people in Cambodia or South America, um, we, to see you as truly and fully equal, there's a lot of things that would not be happening in development work, right? Because there's, there's a pay gap as wide as 900% in the development sector where me as a white person with my master's degree could go work for the UN or work for, um, uh, save the children or work for comic relief for any of these organizations. And I could get paid uh, up to 900% more than someone just as, if not more qualified in their country of origin. Yeah. Like how insane is that? I should be paid less if anything, because I'm not from the country and I don't know what to call it other than colonialism. Yeah. yeah. Um, yeah. I don't. So yeah. I think yeah. that, um, yeah, I think that the powers at play is, I think what you're saying about charity at home is really interesting because I think part of the problem is until you start addressing the inequalities and the discrepancies within your own like country, whether that be looking at the gender pay gap between men and women or looking at microaggressions like you talk about within racism, I think when you start to see the nuances in your own country, then you might have a better understanding to think about why it wouldn't be appropriate for you to go and volunteer in a certain place or why it wouldn't be appropriate for you to do something. But if you're completely yeah. unaware, if you're completely blinded by your privilege in your own country, it's going to be very difficult for you to understand why this is a negative. And it is a really uncomfortable process being faced with the fact that some of the choices you've made in your life will have oppressed other people. And some of the language you've used will have been very um, degrading and rude. And even when I was younger, I talked to lots of my friends who are women of color or mixed race. And we they would even say, because they were brought up in a very white setting they were like we didn't even realize that like, we were being racist to ourselves and to other women because we were just so conditioned to not know and actually whitewashed yeah and and ad- addressing it like retrospectively is kind of weird so I have a mixed race friend she's like I didn't even really realize that I was black or that I was mixed and that's kind of that's really problematic in, in itself because she just didn't know until she kind of went out into the world and then she was like what why don't I why am I not the same? You know, it's it's like like you say, your your brother's re- raising like a mixed child. And I think it's such a big deal that we talk about, especially in Britain, I think there's a massive like prudish nature towards talking about anything. But you need to talk about it. We need to talk about the fact that racism is very real. It does exist. Like you see these tweets on um, Twitter where white people are like, oh my God, racism doesn't exist in this area in America because there's a like a multicultural march. Have you seen this stuff? And it's like people genuinely believe that it's not there but racism doesn't have to be someone using a word that's really rude racism can be as you say like asking someone why are you having that for breakfast that's weird and it's like it's not weird it's that's their culture or why are you wearing that or why is your hair like this those questions are microaggressions because you're trying to put yourself as the person of privilege as the setting standard or as the norm and everyone else is the other but that's not and actually touching on that all these liberal me my my experience here in the U.S., where you have the liberal cities like Portland, Oregon, or it's a facade. Really, uh, even within yes, it is. It is is a facade. Even within the white liberal movement, um, they, there's microaggressions and 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 have 
racist undertones that they're not even aware of sometimes, or if they are, they, they refuse to acknowledge them. And so it, it's, it's deeply rooted. So th those, those idea, that idea of even within a multi, multicultural city, they are still um, segregated within yes. that. You know, so you'll go, whether it's Boston, Portland, Seattle, you know, anyway, just like if you go to Leeds, you know, Birmingham, you know, London, you know, Manchester, you'll see it. It's, yeah. it's, it's, you might be multicultural, but you're in your segregated spaces. Yes. And, and so it's a facade in, in general that is this whole, you know, um, you know, uh, kumbaya, you know, you know, like, oh, we, you know, yeah, there is, there is multiculturalism. I think young people are showing that more than people our generation. You know, I think, I think the future, I think the, the, the promise or the, the hope is in what we see with young people because yeah. they not only see who they are, but they're also challenging how we place, how we identify them. You know, sure. in terms of how they view themselves, even gender-wise and so forth. But that's, yeah, so there's a facade in that. And so it's interesting. Those images go out there and people think, yes, yeah, you see people marching and everything, but they have to do the work. I can call myself a feminist, but I have to continually do the work yes. to unlearn all the male uh, chauvinist patriarchal aspects that I have that has been taught to me since birth. Right. So I could claim to be an ally to women and other genders and the GLBTQIA community, but I could, I can still continue to do and say things, whether I'm aware or not, that can be aggressive and prejudicial. Yeah. So you, you, it's recognizing that that aspect, and a lot of white liberals that claim to be allies of the movement of of, of, of uh, breaking um, um, the system of racism and so forth tend to not see do that self-reflection yeah and, and and that might be harsh for me to say this here yeah, but it is it is what I've witnessed um, and it's acknowledging that and doing the work is what needs to that's the other you know I, yeah I completely agree I think the biggest fight I genuinely think it's over the language I think people are so scared to be thought of as racist to be seen as racist that they can't even sit there and acknowledge like actually maybe that was a racist thought or maybe that was I think that being true to yourself and just seeing it is the best step forward but I think people find it so affronting that they actually can't they're just like no everything's fine because once you, once you start to dismantle your understanding of the world, you see the cracks in everything. I started to realize how many racist thoughts, not like outwardly racist, but just things I would yeah. think, presumptions I would have about a person of color or presumptions I would have against a certain race. That isn't me being like, oh my God, I hate that person. It's just I've been conditioned to believe a racist idea. And I think mm -hmm. being able to have that awareness and go, I'm going to change that. Because once you can see it, you can change it. But I think if you can't see it, you can't change it. And most people aren't willing or aren't ready to be like, actually, I have played a part in propping up a, a structure that is that is wholly unfair. Yeah, yep. I think um, that's so necessary to talk about. I think one of the biggest things that jumps out in that conversation, um, yeah, so humility. Mm. We just say that humility is, I think if I could study that, if I could write a thesis and yes. do a PhD on, the, on what is 
what what is missing for people who are not willing to see their role, whether again, whether it's misogyny, whether it's white supremacy and racism, whether it's the white savior complex, you know, more specifically in the Southern hemisphere, I think humility is what separates, right? Because we're, we're, it's not, we're, we talk about ignorance, right? I, I think that's, that's a cop out because we, in this day and age, everyone, we have access to this information. Yeah, it's true. Um, and I think there is, there is truth. There are some levels of ignorance there, but I think even more so it's the level of humility, right? Is, is to say, Hey, I have messed up. Mm. And I, I think that one of the biggest ways we can help encourage a change in that, whether, you know, not just for our generation, but for generations above and below us, um, is talking about it openly. Like, I think one of the worst things I can do or anyone, anyone in this work can do is to talk about it as if we're removed from the problem. Yeah, exactly. So we need to be able to, before anything else, mm-hmm. be able to say, no, 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 I'm not going to point the finger outward until I look at myself yeah. and, and not, you know, look at myself and that now I'm good. You know, I'm doing anti, no, ongoing. Yeah. <laughs> as I'm, as I'm challenging these other organizations, in my mind, I'm, as I'm coming back to Uganda in a few weeks, what, what is that? And I'm going, I'm going to be visiting a friend's project in Tanzania. What does it look like? I've never been to Tanzania. What does that, what does that look like to enter a new community and yes. enter, you know, meeting with another organization um, of folks? Am I coming in to learn? Am I coming in as a student or am I coming in to impose what I think I know and what I think I'm an expert on? Um, and so that's just kind of a little, you know, added part of this ongoing conversation is that I never want it to be portrayed that I think I've figured it all out. Yeah. Uh, um, I know that I can perpetuate problems now still, but I want to be held accountable and I want to be challenged. Um, and I think that comes from a place of humility. Yeah. So I think if, if I had anything I would want the listeners to this episode to take away is that we're not, we're not saying don't go, don't travel, don't volunteer. We're saying like approach it. If you can't approach it with humility and with the understanding that as if you are white, or you are even a person of color coming from a privileged context that you can perpetuate really harmful narratives. You can perpetuate really harmful things and by way of the white savior complex. So approach it with humility and a a desire to, to minimize um, that potential harm. I can, I can go even further than that and say, start, start at home. You know, I think you, you know, before you even think about going anywhere else, look at your community, look at, look from within first. Like, I think I would even say there should be a moratorium on people just going, you know, you have to look, look at, unless there's a special relationship that you glean from, you know, I think right now, I think you have to look at home. You have to look at your community, where you can work your spaces first, because, there's an interesting tendency for a lot of those that do charity work, going to Africa and so forth, and ignore the disparities that exist in their own country. Yes. And ignore the racial, uh, gender, and completely ignore, like not pay attention to, and are complicit to the continuation of those disparities. And so, uh, yes, you might want to Yes, I want to go to Vanuatu and volunteer. I, yes, you you can have that wish, but again, what are you? Why? You know, yeah. it's, it's better. I think the better thing is to go and visit and 
contribute to the economy as a tourist. Yeah, and, that's so true. And, and appreciate the culture from that perspective before you decide to want to, you know, take a backpack and four thousand dollars or whatever, and 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 head out to. Uh, whatever country you think that needs your help. Also, I guess you know? fundamentally, if you if we work in our own countries to dismantle these ideas of racism and to platform people of colour, people from different minority backgrounds, um, whether, uh, people with disability, people with different genders, all of these things, if we work to make those at the forefront, I think that is what's going to really help if other countries are in, in difficult situations or in conflict, lead by example. If we make it so that equality here is so steadfast and so credible and so real, I think that will give us a much better stead to be able to stand there and go, actually, you know what, I can help here rather than not. Does that, do, do, would you agree with that? No, I agree. That's exactly what my, exactly that, exactly, exactly that. Because that then gives you uh, a really understanding of, what it takes yeah. to be to be uh, a community activist, to be you know someone who cares about humanity. And yeah. the other thing I was going to add on, another add on to that is it should be an exchange system. If you want to go and volunteer in Uganda, then there should be someone from Uganda who comes and volunteers yes. where you're from. It should be. So it's a cultural exchange, yes. a cultural understanding of, 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 of one, you know, so it's a cultural exchange. It's not exactly. a power play. Hmm? It's not a power play. It's you both have exactly. value to add exactly. to each place. Exactly. So this person comes to your community and lives with your family and learns about the culture and systems of your community and, and volunteers somewhere as you do the same there. Yeah. That's how it should be. So yeah. it's not just a one-way traffic because what also continues to perpetuate is that young uh, African kids or black kids or whatever, seeing all these white um, adults coming in and doing all this work, it creates this, um, this, you know, you know, this awe. Yeah. Thinking, oh wow you know and that's those are those are damaging so images. damaging that's something i grew up with okay because in kenya you know in terms of what we watched growing up it was british and american movies yeah. uh tv you know programs and so forth and it was you know very obviously white centric and even blonde blue eyed was the you know the number one thing that was played out and yeah. so you see barbie dolls and all of that stuff so when you see those images that's why you have people trying to lighten their skin all over whether it's southeast asia africa you know um you know lightening their skins you know uh, trying to make their hair straight and all of that stuff because of all these things that have been put and it, it also of- i guess it makes on the flip side like i bet a lot of people will be ignorant to the fact that Africa isn't just a sea of people who have nothing. There are people who are doctors, yeah. lawyers, have careers, oh, yeah. intelligent. Like, it's only yeah. a small portion. I think the narrative is so pushed out there that, like, people in Africa are all starving. And, and Africa's fucking an massive. Uh, Nairobi, where I was born and raised, is now known as the Silicon Savannah because it is, it is a tech hub. There's oh, wow. over... I think three or four billion dollars worth of business going on in terms of the tech industry. Uh, they're so way ahead in terms of, you know, this startups, you know, 200 or 300 startups every yeah. year, I think. 
And, uh, you know, this whole money transfer aspect actually came from, from Kenya. Oh, wow. We were doing this 10 years ago. There we go. You know? There we go. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. We were doing this. Yeah. Okay. We were doing this 10 years ago. So there's innovation going on all over Africa. Yeah. There's, 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 there's so many brilliant kids, you know, people doing brilliant things the African way that, that incorporates the African way and also gleans from technology and systems from other areas. And so this image of Africa being helpless yeah. and needing assistance, every place in the world needs assistance. Exactly. I see it here. I, UK, I am so sure. Yeah. You will struggle. Everyone struggles. No one is... The idea, like, ask any middle-class person, are you happy with your financial situation? Do you feel secure in terms of how you're living? Do you think you, you know, do you, are you working extra just to make ends meet? And it's a universal yes. yes. So it's, 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 um, it's, it's, those are the things, yeah. I, I mean, think I could go on. it's so <laughs> true and it's just it's it's that whole message about misinformation and platforming and and, and you're completely right. right it's about trying to keep a certain hierarchy in play and the problem yeah. with that is that it just it just self-perpetuates the more people go out to help in Africa the more these young children are thinking oh why are they doing yeah. this and then the people on Instagram think the whole of Africa which is also is so it's so redundant everyone's like Africa as if Africa is like one country that's yes. like all the problems they are just localized yeah, into like you know, that exactly. big. And it's weird because you even brought up on the idea that, oh, poor Africa. I don't know where that narrative started, who decided, well, we do, but I mean, it's just not taught. And that's, yeah. yeah. I mean, I would, you know, what I would blame is uh, in some ways it's the governments themselves yeah. that have, you know, uh, that create this narrative in what they teach in schools and school curriculums and, you know, and when you're a person of privilege that goes to visit a different country, you tend to be more. And when I'm saying person of privilege, I'm talking in terms of wealth. I'm yes. Not necessarily talking. So if you're, you know, generally a lot of people who visit are upper middle class to rich. Oh, for sure. And so yeah. that that in itself creates that, you know, huge disparity. Disparity, and so. And it's actually, you see the same in the reverse. Like a lot of students or a lot of people who visit the UK or from us, from Africa, are people of privilege, yeah. you know, do very well for themselves. And so uh, it's, it, 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 so you have this, you know, you're above, you know, like someone visiting Africa, you know, has that mentality already. And then is and they, the funny thing is they'll skip, the, they'll skip all the, they'll go straight to the poorest areas. Yes. Yeah. Because they'll skip, oh, they'll skip Nairobi. No, I'm not going to, you know, but I'm going to take pictures of, you know, uh, kids who are looking, who are poor. And, you know, it's a very interesting, it's, it's a very well played. signaling, isn't it? I guess. Yes. It's like the real. Yes. Can, yes. I, can I say something to that? Oh, sorry. Yes. Yeah. Go ahead. No, no, I'm done. Yeah. No, I'm <laughs> um, sorry. So one of the things I wanted to say to that, which is an excellent point, and I hope I am not repeating anything, um, is that. You think about like, okay, confer are you familiar with what, I mean, confirmatory bias? No, I don't think so. Okay. So confirmatory bias is the things that we store in our memory and our, in our knowledge bank of certain things. So, right. So let's use the example of all the mass shootings that happen in the U S mostly are by white men. Yes. But we're not, you don't, 
store that white men are terrorists or we don't store in our memory bank that like when a white man is crossing the street in normal business attire that I should be more terrified of him than a black man honestly because who's more likely to commit a mass shooting where I'm going to be so true Um, but that's so confirmatory biases what do we store in our memory about that group of people whether it is Muslim people so we have tons of confirmatory bias issues with the Muslim population we have tons of confirmatory bias when it comes to um, trans women. Um, yes. There's tons of confirmatory bias issues when it comes to Africa. And so, you know, we have like, there's a section of my city called Kensington um, where there's documentaries and things about it because it's it's so messed up on heroin. The whole area is like people, like kids that I, I, I've worked as the juvenile justice social worker and kids that are from the community, like um, Black and Latinx children, like youth, 15, 16 years old, they refer to their own neighborhood as zombie land because oh, wow. there's been such an influx of opio- the op- opioid epidemic. And it's largely people not even from that neighborhood coming in, living in like 10 cities. Yeah. And so you look at that and I think devastating, horrible. They need help. They need all the charity in the world too, right? But when you think of America, you don't think of Kensington. No. When you think of, you know what I mean? So like there's poverty, there's, you know, sadness, there's brokenness in all parts of the world. Like that's a big theme of this, this is, conversation today. But yeah. one of the most damaging things is that within confirm the conversation around confirmatory bias is that it's not what we're storing as the, the, the overarching narrative. Yeah. I think so, what's so damaging is, and this could be a whole other podcast, but it's when it's like, um so it's a white man father accidentally shoots daughter or something or like father accidentally something and then it then it'll be like Mm -hmm. if it's a black man it's like black man kills and it'll be he actually didn't but it's the headline it's the newspapers it's all of those things and I think we are becoming to use the word more woke I think that social media and I think right younger generations are being so like calling people up on this because the people's the people in power especially in the media tend to be older white middle-class men um who control it but the people taking in the media now the younger people aren't like they're like no this is bullshit but that's still such a small echelon of society that's using twitter that's talking about these problems and it's like this is the other issue like people who are engaging with it if you are from a like a lower socioeconomic background like are you able to interact with information that's telling you that actually a lot of the stuff you're getting fed for free in the news isn't actually that true this is the other there's so many nuances to how we view the world you know like people who listen to my podcast most likely are going to be from quite a good socioeconomic background probably will be quite yeah. educated already have the access to these tools and are learning further and it's right. it's so it's once you see that then you're like god this is a whole massive world out there that we're just it, i don't even know how you tap into it you know yeah no it definitely is i think that in activism anti-racism activism all of that is it it, there's a lot of issue with like classism and accessibility and I one of that's one of the things I've really noticed is that like a lot of whether it's the especially I think whether it's like women in Uganda that are living in a slum or the village or it's women in Billy living in public housing and working their yeah just make ends meet with their three children and like they their where are their voices in feminism right when we talk about intersectional feminism or anti-racism where are their yeah because 
really these systems that are oppressing are actually affecting them more than anyone else. Yeah. And so, so often mm. the people who need to be heard the most, not that they're not voiceless. Like I think we brought this up. They're not, they have, they have voice and they have very powerful things to say when given the opportunity, but where, where is their seat? They the don't team? have a platform. That's the thing. So this yeah. is my issue. Like the other thing we'll, so I've been talking about ages, the last thing I kind of want to touch on just, it's from a personal question point of view. So like, I was saying to Bruce that I interviewed two um, women who are both lesbian refugees from Cameroon who are trying to come over here and seek asylum, but it's really hard to on the grounds of sexuality. And my my kind of angle with things now is trying to platform people and give them a voice, but how much of that ha- has got white savior complex or how do we, because the other, the, the sad truth of a lot of things is, is as a white woman, I can platform shit that other people can't platform, you know? So that I know mm-hmm. that I can get to a place that a woman of color probably couldn't in certain industries. Mm-hmm. So how yes. how do I use that to help other people? So like give them a voice, but how do I do that without it turning into like um, kind of like I'm doing good? Do you know what I mean? Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. That's always um, that's always a learning process. I think um, in terms of where does you wanting to help then not turn into the savior complex aspect. I think part of that would be to challenge the systems themselves. So if you is have these conversations in places that where you see, yeah, if you work in an office that's all white, going into a meeting and say, why isn't there diversity in our, why aren't we being diverse or why are we, why aren't we recruiting um, from a diverse population, yes. you know, it's like those are the things you can do on the flip side, because it's one thing to be helpful to someone who is need, in need of help. But then are you also confronting or challenging the systems that are causing that disparity? Yes. So I think, uh, so that's what I'm saying. So like, if you, yeah, if you, if it's an organization that you work in or you 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 want to use, to aid someone, look at the organization itself. Is it is it operating from a place of of, of inclusivity? Yeah, you know, that's that's how I would see it. So yeah. for me, if I want to be an ally for women, or an ally for the LGBTQIA community, or an ally for you know immigrant populations, if I'm in a space where, like, even this conversation we're having, I'm in spaces where where it's majority white or whatever or majority male and it comes and we're having just a candid conversations i will bring that those conversations up if something says someone says something off kilter i will confront it as you know because we tend to you know it's fearful it's it's scary not to i mean yeah. it's scary too and i i mean in the past i was scared to you know, I had all these thoughts and feelings about how I hated all this disparity that I was seeing, but I was trying to be the the the, the good black guy. Yeah. You know, the the, the, the safe black man, and uh, I had to let go of those layers. I had to, um, because yeah. all it does is you become complicit. You that's become the thing. Part of the system. That's the level of racism that people often are at that they can't see it because they're they're inherently good people. They don't want for anything bad to happen, but it's that fear of being like. Oh my God. Cause that even happened to me when I went on the no white saviors page. I was like, Oh my God, I've done this. I didn't even know that. And you have to be like, shit, I need to address this behavior and see yeah. it. And that's yeah. like, you, I see it all the time. But I think it's that first step to being towards like, you're never going to be and like, 
if you feel comfortable, it's probably because someone else is suffering. I think is usually yes, how it works. Exactly. This, I, I, it's it's the balance between always recognizing that there's uh, an imbalance and you yeah. can't be completely comfortable yes. when that imbalance exists. And then at the same time, giving yourself space to re- regenerate and rejuvenate so that you can challenge those disparities. Yeah. So, you, so you, you're never comfortable. Don't allow yourself to be comfortable, but also give yourself space to, to internalize and rejuvenate so that, because sometimes if you're always just fighting, then you will exhaust yourself. Yeah, but you exactly. have to, there's a balance, you know, you have I to think... find that balance between taking time for yourself and rejuvenate. But then when you go back in, always recognize, yeah, if I'm comfortable, someone else is uncomfortable. Yeah. How can I change that? And I think sometimes what happens is we get this massive feeling of guilt. Guilt's never useful. I think that's something we need to talk about. Like, don't feel guilty, just do something. So instead of feeling like, oh, I've realized all this stuff and now I feel really bad about it. There's no point like ruminating and feeling bad. Just try and change a dis... Because I think I just felt guilty for ages and I thought that in of itself was helpful. It's not, you know? So that's... Yes. Yeah, yes. That, that's so Go important. Ahead. I think... Um, I don't think guilt or shame um, is productive beyond that initial... <laughs> yeah. Beyond initial, like, it's just going to, like, paralyze you. And I hear a lot of people talk about this and I can relate to an extent. Um, but there's so much work that needs to be done in challenging... Like, like Bruce has so much work to do in challenging other men about like misogyny, right. And and the patriarchy, like he has so much work to do in that. And you, you and I as white women have so much work to do in challenging fellow white women and white men. So in ourselves. Yeah. Yeah. Challenge. Yeah. Yeah. That's the biggest challenge. I think the first challenge is yourself for sure. Not trying to live in the guilt and shame and realizing like that's kind of counterproductive, but realizing that, once you acknowledge it and are able to start educating yourself and understanding and asking for accountability, that is where the real growth is going to happen. Um, I think also looking at motivation, I know Bruce has talked about um, just motivation and everything. And I think Bruce and I were talking about the quote from Bruce, do you have your phone out? Could you find that quote by Joyce Banda? Uh, Yes. Just, it's on the No White Saviors timeline. Um, so she, ta- I don't know if you saw the article we posted about when Madonna went to Malawi and was basically demanding that Joyce Benda like pay her attention. No, I haven't read it yet. <laughs> yeah, it's really good. So well, it's did not- you post it? Oh, yes. Okay, here it is. Okay. It says, kindness, as far as its ordinary meaning is concerned, is free and anonymous. If it can't be free and anonymous, it is not kindness. It is something else. Blackmail mm. is the closest it becomes. Yeah. So basically, yeah. yes. So if it's not free and anonymous and you want to project that kindness and it be known, then what you're doing is coercion. Yeah, it's what so you're doing true. Is you, you want something for the actions that you are doing. Yeah. Uh, and so it, it changes completely from... Uh, a self selfless act or selfful act into uh, a transaction. Not to right. go like too deep, but the other problem with this is yeah. it's because of the rise of social media and because innately I'm reading a really good book at the minute about how our desire to experience things has changed so much that we don't even want to experience them. We want to, we experience sharing them. 
So we don't even experience things anymore. We experience how people respond to us sharing them online. So the other problem, like the, the other nuanced section is like, some people might actually be inclined, but it's so in our nature now to share stuff that it's almost like you can't get away from it. Yeah. yeah, but that's and a whole other that problem. Because so I, I want to acknowledge a former president of Malawi, Joyce Banda. Kindness, as far as its as its ordinary meaning is concerned, is free and anonymous. If it can't be free and anonymous, it is not kindness. It is something else. Blackmail is the closest it becomes. Yeah, it's so true. So, yeah. Oh, good, and it's so neat. I mean, yeah, I think that again, I think we could do a whole episode on the the influence of social media on do and like social good, because I think um, there's actually someone who's doing research in um, the UK right now around the, like, I think they're trying to focus on the good that social media does. And I think, I really do think there can be a lot of good. It can be harnessed to do a lot of good, but it can also, it can also obviously like we're seeing do a lot of harm. And I don't think there's been, as much conversation as there has been about the white savior complex, I don't know if we really understand the gravity of how much social media, like blogs, Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, how much those, those uh, sites and platforms have really encouraged more of it and even more irresponsibility. Like I think that maybe before, like, you know, 20, 30 years ago, there maybe were people that were more equipped or at least not as frequently seeing, you know, 18, 19 year olds going and starting NGOs. And it's, uh, yeah, I don't really have words. I literally lose words when I think about the way that this has all been so normalized. So I think we haven't really seen, you know, just to finish that thought, we haven't seen or understood the gravity of what social media has really done. For sure. It's definitely yeah. amplified. I mean, with, with so many things, I think it's it's such a um, it's such a double-edged sword because I see so many merits, but so many pitfalls with it. It's just, as you say, I could literally talk about it all day. So to finish off like this conversation that we've been having, the main takeaway really isn't to be affronted or feel like you're doing anything wrong or feel like this is an attack. I think what we need to do is shift our understanding of the way that we look at the world. And that starts with just trying to see who you are in a society and how the society profits off that and follow accounts like No White Saviors, Rachel Cargill. Is it Cargill? Cargill? Cargill. Yeah, I think it's Cargill. Cargill, yeah. And then um, I'm going to link some other, you guys below and then anyone else, but did you guys have anything that you think is a really good, like, takeaway message for someone who's been listening? Uh, Chelsea, go. (laughs) If I could have another thing that I feel like I would really love people to walk away with is that if you wouldn't do it in your own country, please don't do it in another person's culture, in another person's country. So if you wouldn't start that, if you wouldn't have been able to start that charity at 18 years old or start, you know, volunteering in that position at whatever age in your own country, in your own city, in your own context, then please don't do it abroad because what you're doing is you're saying that what you're saying is that people in another country and especially, you know, whether it's East Africa or another um, region in the Southern hemisphere, what you're saying is that people there deserve a lower standard than what you provide in your own country. And that that's not fair um that's not ethical um and it's just plain wrong so really go into the mindset of when you're trying to assess if you volunteer abroad or work abroad would you be able to fill that role in your own country of origin yes that's such a good idea yeah love that bruce any parting words 
Uh, wow. Unpacked so much. I think <laughs> um, do self-examination. Ask yourself about your motivations for wanting to do this if you are looking to volunteer and look within your community and the people around you and the Im- immigrant community that's in your in your city, town, region, country. Um, if you want to learn about other people and other cultures um, and study about uh, the white savior complex, um, patriarchy, um, you know, systemic racism, you know, those things are really important, you know, um, white privilege. Those are things you have to look at before you do anything. You think about anything to do with co-creative work, development yes. work, community development work, not charity. So eliminate charity from your vocabulary as well. Yeah, that's, that's so it. good. I'm yeah. going to do that. I love that. Yeah. Yeah. No, to be fair, though, I have to say that people, my friends from the UK, you guys use that word a lot more than we do. Yeah. I feel like everything related to like social good is like, I don't think I've heard Americans ever use charity as much as I hear you guys. Use yeah. It. It's a very, it's a very used word. So that might be part of the, the work, right? Yeah. Challenging that word. <laughs> yeah. I think so. I definitely do think, cause I do find it degrading sometimes as I say, it, it doesn't quite sit right. Cause it should, you know, like it's not, um, cause also when you say like, oh, you're just doing me charity it is it can be degrading when you're using it in like a colloquial sense with your friends. So why I, I it's think, not seen that? I think, I think it, it's, uh, in itself, even colloquially or whatever, it still is a depowering. Yeah. That's what it means. I yeah. So yeah you need to I think, that. yeah, I think it is, you know, um, it's it's like a pity. Yeah, exactly. You're it's, right. It's a pity system. You know, I'm doing charity work. Yeah, oh, yeah. You know, you're yeah. so right. Language is well, actually even, so powerful. Sorry. <laughs> no, you. Carry I was going to say. I feel like I've heard charity used by people in the UK as more of like a noun than an adjective, or I mean, than a action. Yeah, than yeah, than a verb. Um, like chair, like the charity. Yes. Right, rather than. Yeah. The nonprofit or the yeah, we use like, charity as the word for nonprofit. So every yeah. organization that's helping is called a charity, right? Yeah. So I feel like both of those could be addressed. Yeah, um, for sure. Yeah. yeah, I don't have anything. I'm good. I would. I would love to stay on the call longer. I know. Terrified the house might fall down. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you so Thanks. much. I know we've been talking for ages, but it's been. I've absolutely loved it. I have too. <laughs> awesome. But thank We're you so much. So thank you. Yeah. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you. Bye. Thank you. See you guys. Bye. The best way to give someone a gift they'll never forget is to give a gift they'll always use. American Giant makes clothes that just keep getting better with age like their iconic full-zip hoodie that's designed to last for decades. And a gift they'll wear for years is a gift that keeps on giving. But American Giant makes a lot more than just hoodies. They have impossibly comfy sweaters, classic t-shirts, soft, structured sweatpants, even classic everyday denim, all made right here in the USA, with a quality you'll have to feel to believe. Be a gift-giving giant this holiday season at American-Giant.com and get 20% off your first order when you use code GRATEFULAG23. 
That's 20% off your first order at American-Giant.com. Promo code GRATEFULAG23.